Oh, Henrik, oh, Henrik, how you must have missed me. Not the slightest, my darling. <laughs> I, I must definitely, when it comes to a podcast and you, I couldn't give a damn. Oh... Seems like we're continuing straight from the another day feelings. <laughs> oh, lovely. And what would be better in this podcast than, than two guys talking about a romantic film with the with the perfect romantic touch to start it off? Ah, first, Jesus Henrik or Fiddly Dede, whatever. It's been a while since we've checked out a film with most of its cast gone, uh, gone with the wind. And let me just add that. This episode will not be as long or longer than Gone with the Wind, rest assured. This episode will rather proceed with the speed of a wind, if you will. Don't be so certain about that one, because we are somewhat, if not notorious. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I speak for the entire podcast. Henrik, so, so we start off with films that are chosen by Henrik in this year. And diddly do, we already have the longest film that I probably have watched. I'm not sure, but it's three hours and 43 minutes. So, yeah. are you starting to regret your decisions? Of course not. Never regret. This is one of those films that you have to go through, I guess, at some point. So, I I, I don't know. I, I kind of don't believe in that you have to go through mentality in film like sure we we uh, make the remark that there is some of the must in movies every now and then but still in the end when the push really comes to show i don't honest to god i don't uh, with a with a hand on my heart i don't believe that there is kind of a must see film or a film that you most definitely just have to experience at some point well last year we started off Pretty much with all these great classics, and like so Halloween Four. That was 2018. Now it's 2020. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we've been running for quite a while here. It seems. Let's keep it up. What's your experience with Gone with the Wind, Henrik? I've seen it to like. This would be my third time see- seeing the film. I usually don't watch watch the movie. This is something that once again. It's the old classic favorite of my mom's, and the first time I ever actually encountered the film was most because of my mom and because she likes the film so much, and also the first copy that I ever had of the film was actually being borrowed from my mother. Yeah, and we already know what is your motivation for watching this film. It's of course the racial subjects that you so love in this podcast. Well, I I mean it, it is it, it is a timeless classic from from the kind of a golden age uh, golden age of Hollywood and like you mentioned it did touch upon that the theme of slavery 
And that is something that I can most definitely relate to in this podcast. <laughs> careful, <laughs> careful. <laughs> It's almost like we never were on high ages on the first place. This is most likely my first time watching this film, and I'm not sorry for it. And here we have a film buff, ladies and gentlemen. Like I've stated before, I've been kind of a different type of film buff. I've always been interested in this uh, different kinds of paths, like Sugar Cane Alley type of stuff. The less traversed type of movie buff. Then again, again there, there is, or there is, and there is not that big of a difference between this one and Sugar Cane Alley. They they both both kind of touch upon a similar theme that be being being the slavery and usage of black workforce. But they simply approach the matter from a dis- different perspective. Sugarcane Alley being from the perspective of the black populace, from from the from the labor perspe- perspective, and Gone with the Wind being a story through the eyes of the slave owners. That's right, and this is the highest earning film during its time by far, and. Uh... Actually, still adjusted for inflation, it is uh, still the most successful film in history, according to Guinness World Records. And some other sources adjusted to 2020, this would be about 3.7 billion dollars in box office revenue. It's also one of the most acclaimed films of all time. For some reason. I would say the reason is very obvious when when you actually look at it. <laughs> the racial themes. Okay, let's see. Gone with the Wind. Uh, it has also been selected for preservation, obviously, because it's one of these big giants. Already back in 1989, it was put into the United States Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. There was also talk of doing two independent films at first from this book, but the idea was dropped in favor of a three-hour and forty-three minutes long film, which. I would suspect it was still the smartest decision if you're gonna do uh, like a good faithful adaptation or whatever is faithful. Then again, there is a lot of stuff that you can consider as not needed. But also, this is the type of film that kind of keeps you interested in, from beginning to end. Even though there could be a lot of scenes that you could get off it and make it into a two-hour film. And of course, this is based on the book, based on the novel by Margaret Mitchell, influential to American history as as well. Everybody knows Gone with the Wind, and also this is the best-selling novel in history. I've heard. I guess that depends on the definition of novel. Then, well, Lord of the Rings should be there just before Bible, but I may be wrong. This book is written between 1925 and 1932 in what the writer called a dump one studio apartment as far as I recall and she consciously didn't want to be involved in the film in any way she wanted to keep a distance despite her kind of liking the producer Selznick but just decided that this is not her field of of operation uh, I, w- I would more like more than that I would actually say that the reason why she was so determined not to be tied with with the film process was that she actually got tired and maybe even a bit of bit afraid of all the publicity that she gathered through the book 
like Gone with the Wind is something that that was never actually meant to be published in the first place. Mitchell was originally started to write the book when she was injured in in horse riding accident, and she was recovering from the from the accident when when the first kind of lines of the Gone with the Wind were were written down. It was simply a, a project for her to pass the time, and it kind of was on off process for her for the for the next ten years. And after that, well, Mitchell never intended to actually bring the book into the public eye. It was just a chance encounter which eventually landed Mitchell a publishing deal. And then the book becomes a huge thing. And basically everybody in in America is reading the book. And that that is something that brings Mitchell into the public eye. And from those perspectives, I can very well believe that for Mitchell, the publicity was something that she really didn't enjoy. And she didn't want to be examined so closely as basically being in the spotlight would mean. My, my take on the subject is that Mitchell wanted to distance herself A, from the book and then B, from the movie. Because once the pre-production started and it would be officially open that there is going to be a film about one of the most successful books in the American history... That, of course, would kind of, once again, it would mean that Mitchell would have to be out there giving interviews and meeting people and be, once again, something that is being written about in in the papers. And there is no sign whatsoever that she was not pleased with the end result, at least. She was happy about the film. She watched the film at least five and a half times or more and always found some new angles from this film about the, how the costumes were made or different plot points. She was asked to join the film crew to help out with certain plot points and what have you, but she always pol- very politely declined because of the aforementioned reasons she didn't want, just want to be involved. So about the story. So this, of course, follows Scarlett O'Hara, the daughter of a Georgian plantation owner during the American Civil War and... Scarlett's uh, love interest is here Ashley Wilkes, who, though early on in the story, gets married to his cousin Melanie Hamilton. So, yeah, here we already have a controversial subject to point out. Only like half of the US states currently allow marrying a cousin. Uh, But let's carry on. There's so many things to go through. And Scarlett marries a man, first just as a revenge for Ashley's marriage, and then marries Rhett Butler. But this is cutting a lot of things out, and we're gonna get to the meat of the whole thing in the scene by scene. If you haven't tuned into this podcast before, the structure is basically we give a little bit of an introduction piece of the film, and then we go scene by scene to as great of a detail as we possibly usually can. And then we finish off with some what we call quickies. So we give our kind of a detailed opinion even after the film of the film, and then we finally get out of your ears. I kind of would make the case that Gone with the Wind is not the film from which you can actually make the podcast, make make the episode that will actually garner us some new listeners. On that regard, kind of going through the the structure of of the episode is maybe not warranted in this case. Then again, most of the film podcasts go through the very popular and very recent films, so I haven't checked this, but maybe there is. Uh, 
there's a huge audience for a Gone with the Wind podcast analysis somewhere out there. I, I you're, you're grasping at straws and betting ho- wishful clothes at the moment, man. Uh, there are listeners that this is how it's this is what it's to do the flick lab episode like i'm trying to come up with come up with the positive overtones here and then henrik crushes it <laughs> yeah yeah i i mean one of us have to be the realistic here <laughs> i thought i was the one <laughs> all right so um, it's kind of an odd backdrop throughout the whole story given that the war doesn't affect always terribly much the the actual love story in the film it does and it then it doesn't uh, so but we will get all this and now that i have dropped all these little bombs i think henrik is aggravated enough to get to the scene by scene not the slightest action if something i would actually make the point that it almost appears as in you are in a hurry to get the film done with and get it out of your system because you weren't too enthusiastic about watching the film in the first place. And now simply because you were the foolhardy idiot, emphasis on idiot, who decided to actually go on and take my list into consideration and now we are stuck with actually watching the con with the wind. You just kind of, you're in a place you don't want to be. And you want to get out of this situation as fast as humanly possible. And I, on on my end, I can actually draw this moment as far as humanly possible. (laughs) You know, I've done my great share of selecting this film, so I'm I'm just basically driving on autopilot now and enjoying the fruits of your labor. So I think I'm the fucking genius here at the moment. (laughs) <laughs> well, 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 you you had the poor sword who who just has has had the pleasure of seeing gone with the wind. <laughs> so it, it had to be done. It's not the first time in this podcast when we are kind of suffering through something just for the sake of suffering it. And and once again, once again, I I have to emphasize, <laughs> I actually am not suffering. <laughs> like, like like the pain you are describing, it's your pain and not mine. I actually quite enjoy the film. Yeah, all kidding aside, of course, there's a lot to like in the film as well. But let's get to it. Here goes. Are you ready for the scene by scene? Because if not, I'm going home. Okay, Okay. in, in that case, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, okay. Here I go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good, read it. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> <sighs> At oh, least oh I... shit, you didn't leave the line. <sighs> At least I tried, but... Ah, goddamn flick lap. No, it, but, but in, in, in all honesty, in, in all kidding aside... Uh, you hate the movie. I, I don't. I most definitely don't hate the movie. But I am interested about the social discourse that is currently going around the film. Like, the reason why I put, put Gone, Gone with the Wind in, uh, into my list, which I then did not breathe a sound to you, I stayed quiet <laughs> in a in a faint effort to kind of a bury my list so that I can say that I have written it, but since you would not find it, we would ne- never actually go through my list and I would kind of, kind of get the best of both scenarios. But like mentioned, when Gone with the Wind came out, it, it was a major success. Financially and also 
when it came to awards, when it came to be acclaimed. And it was chosen for the Library of Congress to be preserved as a culturally, historical and influential film. Something that that can kind of speak something about the era and its themes to even to modern audiences and audiences from the far future, so to say. But during the... What I came, came across later on was that today the film is actually being subjugated to pretty heavy criticism and it's actually even being called to be banned in some places. And this is due to the fact that the film is actually seen uh, to be racist and to be seen as as kind of a being apolitical, uh, apolitical to to the southern senti- uh, sentiment. This is to be seen as pro-slavery and pro-southern movie. And well, basically, the gist is this: that it's kind of a hard to say. Whose film Gone with the Wind is in the end? Because the, the film has like six different scriptwriters, it has three different cinematographers, it has three different directors. So from the entire production crew, it's hard to say who you can say, who, who does the film in the end belong to. But I, I would say if if there would be someone who is the most profilic from the from the production crew, that would actually be the producer David O. Selesnik, yeah, whose original idea it was to even make a film about Mitchell's book. He was involved in the scriptwriting process from the very beginning. He and in the end, but the production of *Going with the Wind* was a was a complete mess where they didn't even have a finished shooting script as of they were making the film itself. They, what they did have was Selesnik's kind of a visual image, what the film would be like, what it would look like, and Selesnik carried this image in his head. So, And from that, I would say that if, if the film is... If you have to be give the credit, if you have to credit the film to someone, you should credit to David O. Selesnik. And that brings us to authorial intent. And looking from that perspective, we kind of would have to look at what was David O. Selznick's authorial intent when he was making the film. And David O. Selznick was very adamant that what he wanted to do with Gone with the Wind was make a film that is so sympathetic to the black cause and and the black demographic that make a film that would kind of not shy away from, from the slavery and the validity of the black experience. And and he wanted to make a film that most definitely would not be pro-Southern, that would kind of not glorify the slave-owning South. And that kind of brings us into an interesting question, which is, how in the nine hells from from such a noble goals you can end up with a film that today is being called to be banned on the grounds that it actually is glorifying the southern sentiment? Well, if you study some of the title graphics that appear and tell the story of the book basically in, in some parts between the film, you can see some kind of wordings that can be seen as very, well, not inappropriate, but... Let's see, it's uh, definitely from the southern perspective, like invaders, for example. 
Sometimes I'm not sure if these words are directly coming from the book, but there is, I believe, only one of these title graphics moments where you have the actual quotes, so that I believe to be directly from the book, and the rest is just written for the film. But that's just it. Because there there were actually two uh, points to make from that. Because I too did pay close eye to the text scrolls that happened throughout the film. And like you mentioned, yeah, they are very glorifying. And I would say to a point they are extremely glorifying. But like you mentioned, they are from southern perspective. Like is the entire story. Margaret O. Mitchell herself being a southern author who started to write Gone with the Wind to kind of uh, make this glorifying novel of her beloved south. So that the, the founding blocks for the story are from the southern perspective and they are pro-south. So, which is, of course, most likely, which is something that, of course, does affect the film. The second point is that you kind of have to take the whole text scrolls with a grain of salt. Because, yeah, the film does actually use a lot of South glorifying imagery, a lot of South glorifying text. But one could also make the argument that that is actually used to kind of mimic a Southern propaganda. To, to copy the text and language and imagery of pro-South me- messaging to simply, in the end, in the subtext and in the deeper coding of the film to turn the message on its head. Uh, can you open that on its head once again? Basically, w- w- what I'm aiming at is that w- when you look at it, look at, look at Coming with the Wind or on a surface level, it's, it's very much glorifying the South. It's very pro-southern story and pro-southern film. Like, you, you get the, the amazing vistas of the southern plantations. You you get the well-dressed gentlemen who yeah. who argue civilizedly and ha- have the certain prestige on them and everything is fucking my lady all, all the time. Southern politeness. Yeah, southern politeness. Like that, that is what, what you get, that is very obviously in, in the film. But when you then, then start to look at how the characters are treated, or like how the characters are being portrayed in their core throughout the film, well, to, to put it mildly, Gone with the Wind is, is, is a film that has plenty of protagonists, but it's a film that does not have a hero. It's a little bit mixed, uh, it's a little bit here and there. Of course, it's uh, doing a favorable service for for the South, but at the same time, it doesn't want to completely overdo it, and it's giving some implications that also the Northerners are not some kind of uh, devils or just the enemy. It doesn't simplify the the enemy to that level. I mean, of course, there are moments, but for example, the uh, character of Red Butler. Is dancing kind of somewhere in between. Like he has, well, he has clear views at least that we don't have enough firepower. We are going to lose this war. This is a futile, futile war. But then at the last second, he decides to join the forces, even though he kind of realizes that this is this may be just too late to do anything about it. 
maybe that's not really really a proper proper way to to argue that he is some dancing somewhere in between but okay no but but what red butler is he is morally the most sound character of the film he's he's the most clear-headed character in the film and he's uh, he's also the character that has the strong, uh, strongest moral compass in him like he he is the one that is most self-aware of the type of person he is and who actually does very clearly see the difference between right and wrong good and evil what you should do and what you shouldn't do that of course that doesn't mean that red actually manages to follow the compass because most of the time in the film red butler like everybody else in the film is kind of an uncomprehensible shitbag but red butler would be one of the few i would say one of the two characters throughout the film that would actually agree with you when you would condemn him for being a complete shit. Apart from being a complete slimebag. No, no, no. He would ad- admit that he is a complete slimebag. Probably. He actually does say that, say that repeatedly throughout the film. He, he does acknowledge that he is not a good character. He do- does acknowledge that, well, he is nothing but a, but a slimebag. And that is something that ma- differentiates him from other characters like Scarlet, who is the main character of the story, or Ashley Wilkes, who also is, is com- completely unable to see the faults in his character. Yeah, other than the sliminess. I think he's uh, a pretty likable character and very matter-of-fact. But like you said, this is uh, Selznick's baby. Selznick wanted to... Be- was it before he even joined MGM, he wanted to make it absolutely crystal clear that if he's going to do films in the industry, Gone with the Wind has to be one of the projects that he will do. And he got to do it and there were several problems and this was... Also the film itself was many years in the making before they started shooting. Like Clark Gable, the actor of Red Butler, was on the radar of Selznick for about two years and they didn't start shooting or the actual production phase before they could secure... Clark Cable for the role. But yeah, there's so many things to, to to touch on, so we can do that in the scene by scene, of course. But just to mention as uh, one last thing before we get to it. Yeah, like you said, this is an interesting perspective overall. This is coming from the loser's perspective. Like how many times does this happen that the loser of the war will get to deliver the story? Well, no, maybe not that often. It, uh, of course, it depends on your depiction of, of the loser and, well, what, once again, what is being lost. Yeah. If, if you would look at, look at the social hierarchies of, of Gone with the Wind, they are, they are to put it roughly, they are, there would be in three groups. There would be the Northerners who win the war, who are mostly not seen in the film and who are painted in, in the most negative light throughout the film. Then there are the southern plantation owners who are the main POV characters of, of the story and then there would be the slave populace. And from from that I w- it, it kind of goes once again how do you count who 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 has lost and what? Because in, in a way the slaves are actually the biggest losers in the story. And 
where their perspective is being left mostly unstudied. At the same time, they, however, are the, the group that is most depicted and most studied in, in other films. Slaves and slavery being something that is kind of one of the go-to themes of of Oscar-baiting Hollywood. Yeah, it's... And then again, there's the South who... Gone with the who in Gone with the Wind are are the the most followed group of losers. At the same time, in today's America, there is still exists very strong pro South mentality in in some parts of the country. So in in that sense, you would say, could make the argument that even the South didn't in the end lose that badly or that completely. Like, like the South as an institution did come to an end. And basically the plantations that once had, had thrived, well, they, they came to an end and they had to close down or, or change their business or somehow basically accommodate the fact that South lost the war. But when it comes to South as an ideology, when it comes to South as an as a feeling and as some kind of a non-physical place like like when it comes to south as an ideal and south as a sentiment well on, on that you could record that that hasn't completely been lost even today instead that actually in 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 american culture that is something that very strongly today lives with the alt-right hate groups alt-right hate groups and also just the plain mentality as you said of the south and you know texas still does have some some willpower to get independent someday if you ask from some folks so it's it's there and all this southern politeness or their overture or intro so here Max Steiner is uh, playing his score. He did the score for the film, and which runs for about two hours and was it 36 minutes. He did score, though, even over three hours for the film. Uh, so some were left out from the final product that uh, he scored, but his biggest score effort of all time. And he did need a considerable amount of help to pull this through. Was it uh, six uh, different... Uh, orchestrators that helped him out to do the music well when 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 the score was being made and this is once again this, this is a rumor that i have heard heard circulating around the film is that that max steiner first of all he came into the project in very late stage because selesny kind of was already was almost done with the film or or, or the original shooting of the film Gone with the Wind was was a movie that that well, well reshots were made. Gone with the Wind still wa- was a film where reshots were made e- even after the finishing uh, the project finishing party. So in in that sense, uh, that the project kind of lived on. But the first round of of shootings and retakes was very close to finish. When Steiner was being was approached by Selznick to make the score for the film, and Steiner pretty much for the entire time, Steiner felt that he did not have enough time. He didn't have enough support to actually score such a long film. 
And this kind of led into, and once again, this is a rumor circulating around the film for Selznick to bring two other composers to help 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 Steiner out. This being Wasman and Stockhart. And during this pro- process, a remark was made by either one of the compo- uh, helping composers that they he was being brought into the project to kind of save Steiner's work. Which is something that Steiner himself accidentally happened to hear and became extremely furious about the comment and that kind of a fuming with rage Steiner simply marched back into into his office and then just forced himself to finish the score. And if you if you believe the rumor once again, not, this has not been verified at least to my knowledge. That would kind of mean that. Max Steiner himself actually did make the entire score. Hmm. Definitely easy to believe because there, there's been so many tensions high during the whole filming stage and in the post-production. Now we are getting introduced to a lot of characters here. Well, the first scene basically is the Charlton brothers with Scarlett. We see Scarlett for the first time. She is supposed to be 16 year old. Obviously the actor Vivian Lee is a little bit older. And the Charlton brothers are indeed the brothers in the book. They were twins. Supposedly, they were not able to find twins. Tara was built on the Selznick backlot. The Charlton scene was shot here four times, actually. Also under different directors. It was first uh, shot by Cukor, uh, and uh, then uh, by Fleming at at least two or three times. The first problem was that the hair color of these actors was looking wrong on the film. They were looking carrot top in color and they needed to fix that. Somehow it it looked wrong on the film. I don't know, it actually looks like that in the finished product to me. So now we have River with the father. Gerald O'Hara is played by Thomas Mitchell. This is an Oscar winner, Emmy winner, many things winner. But it didn't at all kind of communicate the beauty of Tara. So, so the scene was later reshot completely at the Roos Ranch, as they call it. So the close-up is uh, back projection, of course, and then there's a pullback after the river. And it's a complicated multi-piece composite. And you see a lot of these composites throughout the film. Now we get to the house. Uh, plenty of new faces to see. So Park is played by Oscar Polk, uh, the male house servant. Mammy is played by Hattie McDaniel, uh, won, of course, an Oscar as the first African-American ever. So Ellen O'Hara is played by Barbara O'Neill. She arrives to the property. She was um, 29 years old here, just uh, four years older than Vivian Lee, so it was actually confusing throughout the movie. I get Barbara O'Neill and Olivia de Havilland first mixed up here all the time. They look kind of similar to me. Then we have Wilkerson, and played by Victor Jory. There was an actor supposed to be playing this character before, but uh, he died shortly after shooting the scene, so he had to be replaced by Victor Jory. As seen here, he is the Yankee Jonas Wilkerson, the overseer of the plantation. Then there is Sue Ellen, played by Evelyn Keyes, sister of Scarlet. Karine, played by Anne Rutherford, also sister of Scarlett. George Cukor is the first director of the film, was a Broadway director. Cukor 
he wasn't also very happy with the constant uh, script changes from Selznick. There was a lot of tension with Selznick, and there's a couple of rumors why this happened. Vivian Lee liked Cougar a lot. She was really disappointed Cougar had to leave the picture. There's there's one rumor that I heard that Clark Gable might have had some gigolo past of which Cougar was aware of, and therefore Gable used his influence and got Cougar out. But who knows? Well, the official story is that uh, well, first of all, Kyukor was someone who was with Selznick on k- kind of a conceiving how the film would would be like and how the story would uh, how how the script would work from the beginning of, of of the production. And during the shooting of the film, Selznick's and Kyukor's ties become more strained as as the production sta- starts to be very hectic and and emotionally demanding and later on Kugor would make the argument that he is actually unhappy with the script they are currently using using to shoot and he would like to kind of return back to using an older script was that like script version 6 which Kugor then Kugor would make the remark that I want to use that script, and that would be something that would have, would be the kind of the last straw for Selznick. The two already having been being putting heads on on set because Kugor kind of wants to simply have the authorial control over what happens on the set and. Then having to deal with Selznick, who as a producer takes very very heavy control over over how the actors act and how the film is being shot. So there is this kind of kind of a there, there is there is these two directors at work kind of a situation almost. And that remark from Kugor that I don't like the script that we are using currently would kind of be be the straw that breaks Selznick's back. And Stelznik fires Kugor as a result. Which is really funny because Victor Fleming, the friend of Selznik, was brought on the brought on to direct afterwards, and Fleming was for sure dissatisfied with the script, and they started to make a lot of changes, and production shooting was halted while they were doing this. So they went back to an earlier script, and they reworked the entire script in was it like seven days or so and each day that they were not shooting was extremely expensive for Selznick but uh, they did that anyway. Victor Fleming had just finished uh, shooting Wizard of Oz and was asked by Selznick to join Gone with the Wind. Then again when it comes to Fleming it also bears to remember that Fleming was if not a friend at least an old Kind of a colleague or, or yeah. co-worker with Cable. C- Cable having uh, having worked under Fleming for 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 a few few films, and they kind of are having this mutual bond, or at least enough bond that that Cable would would like Fleming quite a lot as a director, and f- and Cable on his end was was an actor who did not want to participate in Gone with the Wind. Like, he did not want to... Originally, he did not want to play Red Butler. 
he actually did everything in his power to escape from being cast into the role. M much like also Leslie Howard who tried to escape, who did his best to escape from being cast as Ashley Wilkes. Yes, Leslie Howard was probably the least interested of the bunch to do this film. But Money was able to talk to both of, both of these. Well, for, for at least on Cable's end, that was actually an order from MGM. The original situation behind Cable's casting is that Selznick wanted to cast Cable. Because, well, the entire America Selznick included, when they read the book, everybody was th thinking about Clark Cable as, as the embodiment of Red Butler. But Cable was, was signed under MGM and was one of the MGM's biggest stars. And MGM was not in business of hiring their biggest talent to other studios. At the time, Selznick was do doing Going with the Wind that was done under Selznick's own studio. And that kind of got halted the, the whole Clark Cable will appear in the film talks and prompted Selznick to look for other actors to play the part of Red Butler, something that Selznick was unable to do. But the, the, in the end, they, the, there came a point where MGM agreed to take part in production of, of Gone with the Wind, to do it as a kind of a co-production between Selznick's production house and, and MGM. The deal was that MGM would... would Blown Selznick Cable and also give the production a hefty amount of money because Selznick was running out of cash and fast. For this, MGM would get, get the international distribution rights for the film. And this, this was a deal enough for Selznick, he signed that one. And it's because of this agreement that Cable in the end was cast to play Red Butler in, in the film. And Gable did was not happy about this at all, feeling that he was being treated like a piece of meat on behalf of the studio. And that actually could that could be something which explains why Fleming was in the end kept within the project, even though Fleming and Selznick did but heads repeatedly and there was that notorious two weeks gap which during which Fleming simply left the production altogether and just did not show up to work and said that he, he was yeah saying that he was finished with the film and he would no would not see the production to the end. The official explanation is that he do, did take two weeks leave due to exhaustion in the production during which we have a third director. Yeah, Sam Wood, who joined to kind of save the production at that time. But it's quite believable to also assume that Fleming was gotten into the project because Gable was using his power that the, he would not continue to do Gone with the Wind if he would not be able to get his Fleming body with which he had had some cooperation for at least two years prior. That would uh, at least be my guess, like how how casting, how tying down Fleming as the director could have gone, be behind the scenes. Because the production kind of had to sweeten the deal for Cable somehow. 
and somehow pat him, pat him on the back, just so that that cable would soften up the production and would not be so against for appearing on the film and playing the role. Producer Selznick also can be seen as a kind of a fourth director of the film, most definitely. He was interfering with everything and anything he could possibly interfere with. There would be some scenes shot and he would then call for reshoots. He would use benzatrine and thyroid extract to keep himself going throughout the production because it was also taking a toll on himself, but also then due to taking these, let's say, medications, he started to have health problems during the production and money was running out, all these kind of things. But now we have a praying scene. Scarlet here realizes that she should tell Wilkes this love interest that she loves him so he can't marry the woman that uh, he's about to marry. And from here we get to Mammy adjusting the dress for the for the uh, marriage. One of the first shots shot for the picture. Now we get to Twelve Oaks marriage ceremonies. Here we see Ashley Wilkes. Yeah, he died in 1943 during World War II. His plane was shot down by the German fighters. He is quite old compared to Vivian Lee. Especially if you're supposed to understand that Vivian Lee's character, Scarlett, is supposed to be 16 here. And uh, uh, Leslie Howard was in his 40s. And it's quite visible, but they did what they could with makeup. But uh, sometimes it's kind of hard to understand the obsession of Scarlett towards Ashley Wilkes' character. But hey, the, we have all kinds of different tastes. Melanie Hamilton is the one that is going to get married with Ashley. Mammy complaining about sisters behaving like white trash. She says it in quite a couple of occasions, calling some behavior as behaving like white trash. Strong character, Mammy here, I feel. Very much unlike in the original novel, at least what I have what I have come to understand. Also, Vivian Lee was asked by, well, kind of forced by Fleming to play the character more tough, which Vivian Lee actually opposed to. For me, I really enjoyed seeing this kind of a tough female character in such of an old film. Well, tough and tough, but you know what I mean. There are these... She's kind of, as somebody would call at the time, I guess, sassy. Well, I uh, I would make the argument that she is that even today. Like, I, I, I don't see how you can actually debunk Scarlett O'Hara's toughness or strong villainous in, in the film. Yeah, apart from, oh, Ashley, oh, Ashley, I'm so in love. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, she is also the shoot first, ask questions later type of character, and she is a character who, through extremely dubious ways, manages to claw her way back into the top of her social hierarchy and financial security after losing basically everything. Yeah, this is not a very friendly character, we will find out. Like I said in in the beginning, a whole self bunch of dickbags this movie has. Yeah. Um, so men have gathered downstairs to discuss the war at the property. Red Butler thinks they will not survive the war. And, of course, nobody in the room apart from him likes this point of view. So off he goes. 
Scarlet tells to Ashley of his love. This also being well, once again, since since I I made the whole notion of the subtext and and film language throughout the film to kind of a counter the whole or, or made made the whole it turns its obvious visual messaging on its head. This is one of the first examples where that comes to play because this is the scene where. Well, well, it starts with you actually hearing the the opening remarks from from Scarlett's father. Scarlett's father making the notion that they, by gosh, daddy, will never give up their slaves, and they will even go to war, war for for the slaves if they want to, or or if they have to. Like they are not wi- willing to to free the slaves. There, there is also the, the later on mentioned when when Red Butler actually brings up the statistics of the war. There, there is the whole remark of of the one of the southern gentlemen being aggravated by this and and kind of taking it as an insult. The whole notion that that the North could ever actually beat the South, and there, there is also. One one of one of the other men in the room makes the remark that to Ashley, who makes out that he would like to see the South seceding in peace, and someone makes the remark that the North has insulted the South, and because of that, they the, the war is kind of now demanded, like their the Southern pride demands that the South goes to war and. What what all this does? It paints the su- southern characters, the southern plantation owners, and the southern quote unquote gentlemen as as slave owning, slave hoarding warmongers, <clears throat> to whom slavery and the obnoxious feeling of of some certain of supremacy is the whole reason why the south seceded and why the south went into the went into war yeah there is a bit of a mixed messaging so yes scarlet tells of his love to ashley oh i love you i do i hate you till i die and that's the other extreme at which this conversation ends then she throws the vase and red butler appears to be behind the couch and has been eavesdropping on the entire conversation there were a bunch of plot points or characters that were fused or removed also vis-a-vis to the book because, for example, Scarlet had more children in the novel. And the fact that uh, Scarlet has less children in the novel will make the whole uh, miscarriage, for example, all the more uh, powerful. Now, Butler, of course, tries to be his slimy self and introduces himself and is clearly interested in, in the lady. Scarlet then... As a revenge mission against Wilkes, agrees to marry Charles Hamilton, just for the sake of hurting Wilkes. Red has bought a green hat for Scarlet. Will not kiss Scarlet under these circumstances, though, because he he notices that she is really not into it. There's again one of these famous wall texts, let's say. Hushed and grim, Atlanta turned painful eyes towards the faraway little town of Gettysburg, and a page of history waited for three days while two nations came to death creeps on the farmlands of Pennsylvania. So, Atlanta versus Pennsylvania. Uh, there are the lists of the fallen being shared out, and Red thinks this is all a waste of time on the South's part. Once again. 
Major Ashley Wilkes is granted three days of furlough during Christmas times and meets with Scarlet once again. There's a bit of dialogue. Ashley, I... Merry Christmas, Ashley. In front of Mel- Melanie, the wife of Ashley, Scarlet is not, of course, able to go to all the words that he wants to say. Was it before the train leaves? Then we have something that seems kind of random in the middle here. This is the chicken sh- scene, played by Eddie Rochester Anderson, Uncle Peter. Rochester, Eddie Rochester Anderson, he's known for his raspy voice and the Jack Benny show on radio. Had a big career in radio first. And it's a bit of a kind of a comical relief. There's once again one of these title texts, Atlanta prayed while onward searched the triumphant Yankees. Heads were high, but hearts were heavy as the wounded and refugees poured into unhappy Georgia. We get to the infirmary that is in the church. Uh, Melanie, who is also there with Scarlet, says that, no, I'm not tired, Scarlet. They could all be Ashley. So Melody continues forward helping the wounded, followed by introduction of Belle Watling character. She wants desperately to be one of those people taking care of the wounded, so she gives gold money, which is given to her by Red Butler. Uh, Scarlet really dislikes the fact that this is coming from Butler, but gives the money and uh, I suppose then gets to work in the infirmary, which is not really shown here. Well, Scarlet really is not opposing on on Red's money. What more is the problem is the Garva Southern hypocrisy that shows up here. Bell Watling being the owner of the local whorehouse. And because of this, an unclean woman, not a lady. And that that kind of, kind of a giving giving to her money this stigma that it it. It's a whore money. It's a dirty money, and because of that, Scarlet and and the others being unwilling to kind of touch it, even though they are extremely low on, low on finances and needing every penny they can get, because the wounded are piling up and they really need. Basically, they strongly need help to buy more medicine and buy more bandages for the wounded. But once again, they, them, them still being unwilling to take a money from from someone who is who is in prostitution. Right, and it doesn't give a very glowing picture of Red Butler as a character either, especially for Scarlet because she has bad experiences. I, I, I don't know. God, God, God damn! God damn! Are you so lot shaming whores here? <laughs> what? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know, see how, how this makes, somehow gives an unflattering image of Red Potter. If something, I would say this is one of the finest moments from, from Red in, in the story. Come again? <laughs> this is one of the finest moments from Red in the story. In, in the sense of giving the gold, yes. Yeah? So what, 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 what is the goddamn problem here, man? Nothing, I'm not talking about my personal opinion, man. I'm talking about the perspective of these two ladies who have received the money during those times related to this whore money. Well, from those two, Scarlet is is the only character who actually can deduce that the money is coming from Red. And Scarlet being Scarlet, I somehow 
can't believe that she really cares that much in the end. Like that, that does not lower lower her image of red that much lower because it's pretty damn low already. And Scarlet is most definitely not the kind of a moral high point of of the South. Yeah, we have one of those titles once again. Panic the city with the first of Sherman's shells. Helpless and unarmed, the populace fled from the ongoing juggernaut, and desperately, the gallant remnants of an army marched out to face the foe. So, this is nothing but very patriotic text right here. It is, but once again, it's being con- you have to kind of look at why it's being contrasted against. Because what follows the text is actually the hospital scene, with a bunch of wounded men. Scarlet being unwilling to help in the operation of 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 cutting the one dude's leg and actually running away from from the hospice and well even even the remark that they don't actually anymore have opium or any opiates to alleviate the pain of of the wounded and for example the amputation has to be done without any anesthesia. Or any, anything to take away the pain. So that there is, there is once again, there is the patriotic te- text scroll, which which is then followed by images and and scenes of well, well, pretty harsh fates and pretty unsavory acts. Sure, and still, the both sides suffered plenty. Uh, it's just giving one interpretation one point of view of course the the yankees so-called yankees suffered over 300,000 men in the war and surprisingly uh, the confederate army uh, that was a little over 200,000 was it so yeah bullets were flying on both ends i'm sure neither of them were that gracious no no but once again the 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 story is is from the from the southern perspective, and because of that, I can very strongly, very well understand why the northern casualties and and the and the kind of a Yankee prize of the of the Civil War is not being touched upon in the film at all. Like that, that's not my problem. When I see, look at the the more problematic elements when it comes to the depiction of of the North in in Gone with the Wind, it for me it's more more ties with the with the upcoming carpetbagger scene. It it ties with that lone Yankee soldier that comes to Tara and gets shot in the film. Because those those are the only times they are the, they are the only depictions of the North that you get in the in the film, and yep. both of the depictions in those times though they, they, they are pretty damn damn condemning of of the North. Of course, I agree very much. But but the text text scrolls and and the fact that the film doesn't doesn't touch upon the subject of of how harsh the war was for the North. That that I, I I'm willing to look past that. Like I'm I'm looking that through my fingers here. Yeah, I was just pointing my finger to the fact that here we have this kind of a text that really suggests and is driving home something contrary to what was said before. That that this is supposed to be not patriotic from the southern perspective in any way, or they want to avoid it very much. But uh, I... here it is. 
I I kind of a, like I said I I you I I I myself I view those those text scrolls not all of them because because the garbage pack uh, the carpet packer scene is still coming and that's pretty damn appalling and pretty condemning of of the point I'm trying to make but to me the the text scrolls here they are mostly to to kind of a emphasize and to hammer home the more patriotic the more uh, the more pre- patriotic southern propaganda imagery so so that the film then can the, the first it can show you that that imagery and then show you the characters and and the scenes to turn the message on its head like it's it's kind of a similar case as in in well for example starship troopers which has the are you doing your part news reels and that talks about how violence is the supreme authority and supreme force which then are later in the film are being juxtaposed against the the scenes of of, of the troopers getting mauled and and losing life and limb on the battlefield and the whole unglorified aspect of the war and showing you that that the human society of the film in the end is deeply and troublingly fascist. Mm. That of course not meaning that the text scrolls in the Gone with the Wind are not e- they are not entirely free of troubling elements. The the my my, my two biggest problems with the st- text scrolls are are that well the carpetbagger scene and also the fact that the film keeps on using the text scrolls throughout the film's running time. Like, mm. it, it's using the pro-southern imagery and the propagandistic nature of that imagery to to give you the fir- first kind of, kind of approaching point to the film to then, then use everything else in the film to debunk that imagery. Argument kind of a takes a hit when the film just keeps on using that imagery and keeps on using the text scrolls. Because you can make the argument that the, that you could hammer down the point that the text scrolls are mostly used uh, ironically throughout the film, uh, with the film only, you know, if the film would only be using that, that them like for, for the first 45 minutes. But when the film repeats you, the technique of using the text scrolls and you repeatedly uses the imagery and repeatedly uses the surface text of of pro pro southern southern sentiment like hour and 30 minutes mark and two hours mark and and onwards it kind of it it does i i admit it does hinder my point because at that point you kind of have to to ask yourself if if you your plan was to originally just paint a picture in the audience member's head so that you can use the, then use the cinematic language and then you uh, and use subtext to ca- kind of a convert the first uh, the, the image then why do you keep repeating using the image like why why don't you just kind of take the stance that you have already done what you set up to do with the text scrolls and then just you know let the rest of the film being this this turning the whole thing on its head to subvert the original messaging. Yeah, it's definitely giving a little bit of a glorification for for the Southerners. And of course, the 
intent here is not nefarious or or anything of course there were things that were perfectly all right to you know look retrospectively that was good in the uh, old southern life let's say and that's what it's kind of reminiscing here in many places and a kind of not even glorifying kind of making it more giving a beautiful image of the bygone era sure it's all over the film it doesn't have to be though something that you need to ban it depends on these on the context it it once again it it's kind of a tricky question because it it the, the whole banning question it kind of ties down into what was Selznick intention and how that intention played out whichever the en- intention this is a piece of history still and well uh, there's always this kind of people who would make it their kind of a bible and use it as a kind of a hate weapon probably you you could probably go to the library of the Ku Klux Klan and you would probably find gone with the wind there but again it's what you get of it and outright banning anything like this I don't think it's going to meet your goals well once again the, the when it comes to banning you kind of have to to calculate three different uh, different things the first one is would a would the banning being helpful like if if you ban a film will that mean that the film will go away or will it just mean that it will kind of be preserved by, by by the very people you would actually hope that would not see the film like in your example would banning gone with the wind and never screening it again would it in the end leaving that the Kukux clan would take it on their film library and use it, uh, show it repeatedly amongst them uh, amongst their members now that the film is banned and now that that seeing the film is bad evil and forbidden the second one is that when it comes to the problematic elements in in movies should those problematic elements be preserved should the problematic films and problematic media be preserved so that you can actually so that the later generations can can openly come in contact with with that media and look at kind of the lower points of the society to to see where they should never go, uh, return back into and kind of to see how far they have come come from those days yeah this 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 being a uh, and discussion point that we will later on return in this podcast when we touch upon the birth of the nation. And the final point is that is the authorial intent. Like, how much does the authorial intent and and the author succeeding in his intent, how much does that factor in into the audience's right to condemn the film? If you would make the argument that Gone with the Wind was intended to be Southern propaganda, does that mean that that even if the film would not be banned, should we all still condemn the film? Should we say that the film is bad? You are allowed to show the film and you are allowed to watch the film, but basically as a so- society would condemn the film as being being overly patriotic and being Southern propaganda and being slavery apologistic. Well, basically a piece of filth. 
and and well to, to take the other route if you would take the take the meaning that the authorial intent here was pure and it was good and what Zeznik aimed to do was to make a film would, that would in the end actually criticize the south and criticize the slave industry and show you that we should never do this again but simply failed in his attempt would that mean that despite Zeznik intentions the overall product the final film should still be condemned and see as a scene as a failure and seen something that actually should not be given the spotlight and should not be given all the cl- acclaim that the film has received and Gadava is receiving even today. Well, Southern propaganda or overly patriotic or not. Personally, I fail to see so much propaganda here, if intended or not. I don't see it as very problematic if, if it's there. And uh, the main point here is that this is a piece of history, as stated a couple of times here. So it's basically depicting the ways that people were behaving at that time. And so if you want to ban it, be very careful for which reasons you are banning it. Because I don't see the problem of depicting something that actually happened in those days. So unless you're talking about actually finding there something so overly patriotic or southern propaganda that that is the reason that you're banning it. Well, that begs the question. Is the film actually depicting history? Or is it simply taking instances from history and and using those to kind of a strong its depiction of fantasy? It is depicting history and it's not depicting history. Clearly it's like, like a glorified picture of the way gone era uh, yeah, so for example and, and giving the southern making everything look so flowery the whole film is very flowery and giving a picture of that there were no problems whatsoever in south until the invaders came in yeah and i kind of am making the point that slavery was not bad at all and in fact it was good for the slaves well you have to like also the film does well you also have to you you also have to mention here that they were also giving this kind of a flowery picture of the slaves because they didn't want to touch the subject so i think i think it's taking a major and very very problematic shortcut with it no doubt yeah but then again the way how slavery is being depicted in gone with the wind it's one of the the most problematic elements yeah yeah. Of the whole goddamn story, because that is one of the territories where the film goes downright southern apologetic and downright, well, if not downright supporting slavery, uh, at well, least dances awfully close to making that mistake. Well, because yes. god damn, if the film does. Not oh, and once again, this is this is on on the surface text. This is on on the imagery. There is a whole point to be made about the subtext and coding and the film language being in use. But on surface level, one can very well look at look at Gone with the Wind and say that it's pro-slavery. It it uses every single slave apologistic argument that you can throw around and and well, are thrown around still even today. There's, It's kind of a melting pot. You can 
do that argument and then you can also mention the scene where they're shouting at one of the servants that I will sell you away. And that is not really giving any good image of the slavery. Then again, that moment really doesn't mean, well, anything. I mean, when you look at how how the slaves are being depicted all together in the film, nobody is being whipped. Nobody is really even forced to work against their will. Nobody is being shown to be mistreated. Nobody even drops the N-word. And even 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 the KKK sympathies of the characters, which once again I've I've understood exist in the book, or at, at least the book I, I've heard that the book has a moment when when another army comes looking for Red, Red and and the and Ashley and and the likes and the ladies make the remark that. That well, in in the film they make the remark that the whole the, the men's group is is on on a political meeting, but in the book that line would go on that they are on KKK meeting. So all all of that all of that is actually gone from the from the film, and all of that ties very heavily on the black experience under slavery. It's definitely like a picture of its time and merits to be seen. For example, for just that reason alone and it's clearly painting a rosy picture of the slavery which is wrong but still it is, is, is important that is that be, the public has access to seeing something like this but then again that was not really the or at least that should not have been the the kind of a public notion of the times when the film was released about slavery. Slavery was very much illegal and condemned already in in America when Gone with the Wind came out. Then there was the whole segregation sure. thing going on for sure. Mm. But but slavery itself, basically, America was agreeing that that slavery was not okay. And when it comes to to the time period that the film is depicting, that time period is is so kind of a rose colored that at times it borders down on fantasy, which me which kind of a, mm-hmm. once again begs the question, even as a depiction of of the lost South, if the if the depiction is as fantastic as as it is in Gone with the Wind. Can you actually say that that is a depiction of that era? No, absolutely not. Yeah. So once again, what is the film depicting? What 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 is what is the sentiment and what is the time period that the film is depicting that is so accurate that it actually merits to be seen? I didn't say why, why accurate. Should you, it's accurate. Well, well, it's an accurate depiction. In the sense of the, the the feelings of those times, that the 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 Yankees, let's say, everybody was still feeling very much that this was a problematic uh, and not so graceful time period of the United States history. So they just tried to kind of sort of make it rosier than it was, kind of avoiding the subject in a way. That's what uh, I see but- here. That's what I see here. But yeah, but if that's the case, then I would actually say that it does not merit to see the film. Like Gone with the Wind, in that case, Gone with the Wind would not be a film that you actually should watch because oh, yeah. what what you are trying to then then 
what you are looking at is is a nation trying to scapegoat itself out of its own past kind of a painting of fantasy because it it's too goddamn weak to live with the reality and and acknowledging the historical facts well that is and exactly I, I, the I, value of watching this film to understand i would say that 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 most definitely would basically be the value of never touching the film no this is wait a minute like, like be, be, before i start to yeah. before i start to claim that you're starting to spread some kind of a 1984 ideology here like let me get this clear now so you don't you don't want the public to see this because it depicts ra- racial period in american history wrong i don't want the public to to see the film if if the going to argument to watch and preserving the film is that well it's wishwashy attempt to deny yourself from the historical mistakes that you made okay because why the fuck would anyone in their right mind to actually spend their time looking something like that it's it's like it's it it's basically going completely against the whole idea of watching films to actually learn from the time period or or see see into the past because this would in in that case what what going with the wind would be it would be the exact opposite it it, it would be a testament of a nation trying to denounce its past or or de- or deny that that time period or that or that past never happened the way it did well and i would say watching a film about that is kind of the biggest waste of time that you can do yeah it was of course selected for preservation for cultural reasons and most and li- more than likely anything dealing with race or racism or all of these problematic points in the film were not in the equation when it was decided to be specially preserved in 1989 but what the value of the film is for sure is to take a little bit of a time travel to those times and and see how this was depicted wrong and this is an important especially for the african americans to to see i'm sure in that context and i would completely disagree with that notion how the fuck basically well let let's start with the whole preservation I don't believe that that is the reason why the film was chosen to be preserved. I actually the, the two reasons why I I believe that the film is preserved today is a 3.7 billion the technical uh, tec- technical aspects of the movie which still hold hold true and the second because the way I see the film is that in its subtext and underneath its surface the film is actually denouncing that the south and the southern mentality and it's it's condemning the the south of the time and it's it's condemning the slave industry and i would say that 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 the political aspects and the racial aspects actually were are very strong in in the film like it's it's once again it's in the subtext and and it's because of those racial as uh, racial themes and racial aspects and the way what the film in the end attempts and very strongly succeeds succeeds on say, saying about the south 
which is the reason why it's actually being preserved today. And if if you take those away from the film, I then I I fail complete I completely fail to see what time of uh, type of a time capsule this would be in the the the, the historical America or America's past. My argument here was simply being that this is important in the historical sense for the same reasons that we are still watching passionate speeches of Adolf Hitler talking in public or whatever other historical point that we are discussing so it's it's just to it's just it's you can see it as a documentary if you wish but other than that as you said it's important for its technical achievements at the time and for the fact that it is still adjusted to inflation the most successful motion picture ever as but, far but as how the... can you see this documentary and comprise that to the speeches of Hitler because the Hitler Hitler because, um, speeches be- are actually that they are an image of, of yes. real life and they are something that really happened in reality and going with the wind is not reality the slightest and this is an actual depiction of the feelings of those time uh, how, how how complicated it was to you know adjust yourself with the history so that is here to learn that that is the, definitely the historical part but it of course depicts the actual history what happened wrong but it's an historical piece of what what those people making the film were battling with how how do we approach this and apparently the answer was we do not approach this really what again I, I'm saying that they did approach it, and I kind of a felt like I I see where you are coming from with this, but I I don't feel that. Mm. I I would say that in that case, the wish was in nature of the film would kind of rob it rob it from like it it becomes too much of a fantasy and and kind of a finding the whole point of of how finding the whole point of seeing the film as a depiction of nation trying to somehow live with the turbulent feelings of of its past yeah i i would say that takes too much in reading already to actually say that you should should you should watch the going with the wind for that that individual purpose that could be well there are other reasons to watch the film at least it is historically interesting to me how those views were at the time, but also the aforementioned technical reasons and how it is important part of the Hollywood history still, no matter what you think of the film overall. But, uh, okay, so Aunt Pity Pat Hamilton is introduced, uh, played by Laura Hope Cruz, and this is the kind of a servant that uh, screams in high pitch about this and that subject matter throughout the picture. And lies that she can do everything related to childbirth and then is unable to do that in the slightest because she knows nothing about it. And this can be... Some have seen this as a problematic kind of a stereotypical thing of the black population as well. Scarlet decides to stay in town to help Mrs. Wilkers because Scarlet promised to do so for Ashley. And via this we get to the main chunk of the film's setting inside this... uh, uh, what was the ranch called? The inside this household. We get one of those texts again on the screen. Siege. The skies rain death. For 35 days a battered Atlanta hung grimly on, hoping for a miracle. 
Then there fell a silence, more terrifying than the pounding of the cannon. And we have paint still shot. Yankees are coming and they are heading to Tara. Unfortunately, Melanie is about to give birth now and Olivia de Havilland who plays the character had not who plays the character had not given birth, so so she went to an infirmary to study giving birth and here is the infamous comment. I sell you to South, I will, I swear I will. The famous pullback of injured people on the depot. So Saturday, May 20th, 1939. So at the time when this was done, there were not large enough filming rigs available, or apparently cranes for that matter. So they leased the largest size contractor crane available in Southern California, which then was also modified to fit this purpose, where they pull back and give the, like the full view of how many injured people's, uh, people are on the train tracks. Dr. Mead sees he, says he's unavailable to help with the childbirths and says this, oh, don't worry, child, there's nothing to bringing a baby. <laughs> so Dr. Mead seems to be speaking from experience. Yeah, but of course, uh, situation is what it is. Well, he is a doctor. Yeah. And back back to the house of, for the childbirth, and uh, Prissy gets smacked to the face for lying about everything regarding childbirth. Prissy convinces now Red to join the childbirth, and Belle Watling is giving some kind of party. Prissy is there to give some rumpus about the birth of to Red Butler, and Butler agrees to help. Also adds that it was mostly me, Captain Butler, doing the childbirth. So Prissy is shown as kind of a character who is kind of uh, desperate to to be visible. And uh, but... More than that, she's been shown to be a character that is a complete goddamn idiot. Butler helps the mother, baby and Scarlet and Prissy to get out of the Wilkes house. So the old backlots are being burned down here in real life. Lee Savage doing fire effects in a savage way. So Selznick had crazy ideas before this whole the cinerama to have three screens showing the scene from several angles apparently during the premiere. But no, they were just uh, shooting it with several cameras with different kinds of focal length lenses. There was no time to reload reels, so each camera had their own reels ready to go. One camera was doing 72 frames per second and was set up specifically for shooting the collapse of the false front of the Great Wall built for King Kong. And the building was pulled apart from its back by an off-screen tractor. And stunt doubles were used for the scene. And it's quite of an achievement. I was surprised to see such of a fiery and uh, action-y scene in such of an old picture. It's very well executed. Butler informs he has a thing for lost causes and will join the war and leave the post-birth woman and Scarlet and, and Prissy alone. And then forcefully kisses Scarlet. Scarlet and Prissy under the bridge in the river during rain with the horse, followed by this rainbow mat and the war aftermath. You can quite clearly see in the lower parts of the image that these are painted people, painted bodies. Prissy makes the notion that she is hungry. Wilkes' home has been destroyed by the dirty Yankees, as Scarlet puts it, where also a cow is found for baby milk purposes. So they return to Tara, father has gone crazy, mother is on the deathbed, Yankees have stolen most of everything, there's nothing to eat, some servants are gone, and who's gonna milk that cow, Mrs. Miss Scarlet, who is house workers at Spork? 
And Scarlet swears that she will make everything be under control and keep on holding to Tara where we get to the intermission. So we are now at the halfway of the film. Basically, this uh, first half ends like it could be the end of the film with all that thunderous music. But on we go. And there's the title text. And the sweep and the wind swept through Georgia. Sherman. So, quote, To split the Confederacy, to leave it crippled and forever humbled, the great invader marched, leaving behind him a path of destruction 60 miles wide from Atlanta to the sea. Tara had survived to face the hell and famine of defeat. The sisters are now working at Tara. Scarlet slaps her sister over bad talking Tara. Scarlet tells Melly go back upstairs. Yankee robber arrives at Tara, so Scarlet shoots the robber. Melly lies to Gerald and the sister that this was sisters that this was a misfire, and they get some gold coins from the attacker. Uh, one of the uh, kind of a most notable moments of the film. Uh, in what may- way do you mean? Well, is it not? This is the northern attacker, depicted as we have already discussed in a loathsome way. But also, they collect the gold coins from the attacker, well, which anyone would do in that situation during war times, anyway. So I don't see. Yeah, that, this, that's this, a, that's this a bad is point. like I like I said. This is one of the more intriguing uh, or, or the more, in my opinion, the more heinous moments when the north is. Is yeah. depicted like like to me this this scene here is is more problematic than than the than most of the text scrolls throughout the film. So how is it not an interesting key moment in the film? Well, it is, but I was merely you know interested about your motives. Why did you pay attention to this scene? It's a moment of tension, uh, as we discussed. It's uh, depicting the north as it does. Those are the key reasons. More texts on the scream home from their last adventure came the tattered cavaliers. Grimly they came hobbling back to the desolation that had once been a land of grace and plenty. So, yeah, once again, giving kind of a rosy picture here. A land of grace and plenty. And then not anymore. Uh, the text continues. And with them came another invader, more cruel and vicious than any they had fought. The carpet bagger. Which is maybe the most problematic scene of the film when it comes to the depiction of of the civil war and when it comes to the depiction of the north. And then again, these are again terms that are being used at the time. It's not the term, it's about what you are being shown. This is is a continuation of of the whole point of the film actually showing the northern army as nothing more than thieving scoundrels and possibly rapists. Mm Mm-hmm. As it was the case with that one one soldier that Scarlet shot, and in here you are actually finally being shown what what the rest of the North is, what what the victorious North is, and what what that is. It's it's a bunch of uh, land grabbing assholes mm-hmm. who re- refuse to help the wounded and are are acting the obnoxiously indulgent in their victory over the South. And more than that, this is one of the few scenes that you actually shows you what I'm guessing is supposed to be a depiction of a freed slave, mm-hmm. or at least a free black person. Mm-hmm. And that black person also is completely obnoxious and a down-round shitbag. 
taking the whole argument that no, we are not picking up the wounded. Gosh darn it, they act almost like they won the war as they drive off. But was there anything mentioned about please help us with the wounded? Or anything like there, that? There, 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 there is, is the soldier who is, who is carrying his wounded partner who are stuck, who are actually the reason why the car has to stop. Because they are blocking the road. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that, that is not the finest hour here in presentation of these two sides, for sure. This well-dressed black gentleman on horse carriage with suit and everything. And they drive off. Gentleman from Cops Legion who knew Major Wilkes. He says that Major Wilkes is in a Yankee prison, according to the latest information. But then in the next scene Ashley returns... And Miss Scarlet tries to ruin the moment and run to Ashley. But Mammy interrupts and stops Scarlet. He's her husband, ain't he? A moment of realization, at least at this moment, for Mammy as well, what is going on. Well, Mammy has been aware of what's been what's going on throughout the film. I mean, one of the first sequences that we have, Mammy, if not the, not the, the first sequence, is... Is when Mammy makes is at is at Tara helping Scarlet with her corset and makes the remark that Ashley has not asked Scarlet's hand in marriage. Then again, many moons have passed here, and the way that she looks at Scarlet is like utter surprise. Well, it's it's more surprise in in how Scarlet acts, kind of how self-serving Scarlet is. Mm-hmm. Because this is this is not the first, or this is not the only time when Mammy acts surprised around Scarlet. Kind of a being surprised on, on of, of Scarlet's behavior. The, 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 the second important scene on this regard would be later in the film when Scarlet is is dreaming of her lumber mill and and making kind of the first moves to get the mill going on and she starts to to put her wools over Frank Kennedy making the whole oh, well first making the whole lie that 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 her sister is not going to marry Frank because she got tired of waiting and then, then be, being like, being like, oh my god, I I left my muffle at home. Do I? Do you mind if I put my hand in your pocket? And there is then there is the the camera pan to Mammy's face, who once again acts as as surprised and shocked by Scarlett's behavior. So so Mammy's reactions in many ways throughout the film are meant to showcase. To the audience, Mammy's disagreement with the with the ways how Scarlet starts to oh oh the disagreement with Scarlet's manipulative and lying ways, how she kind of attains her self-serving goals in in the story. Sure, it, sure. It's not real surprise. It's surprise that Scarlet would behave this way, that Scarlet would be this shrewd and this conniving. And at the same time, I don't believe that it completely invalidates my point that she's being surprised by this act when Ashley arrives to the property. 
No, but it, it still means that that Scarlet holding feelings over Ashley does not come as news to Mammy. Like Mammy is, is aware of the situation, has been aware of the situation for the entire runtime of the film. The only thing that she's surprised of is that Scarlet would still be this obvious. That that Scarlet would, would be selfish enough to try to make the situ- the moment about her and try to rob the moment from Melanie. Because that's that's very unladylike. Like that that's mm-hmm. downright shitbag behavior. Yep, yep. And now Scarlet is trying to like, once again convince Ashley to once again love her. Ashley tells Scarlet that she loves Tara more than anything, which is an important point we into which we get in the final moments of the film. Scarlet now says that this kind of a attempt at convincing him to love her won't happen again, and not really to the extent that she's been doing in the past. Emmy Slattery and her land shark friend, the person who is trying there to tax the property, offers to buy the property because the once again because the Northerners are horrible human beings, they are asking for three hundred dollars in taxes so that they could keep the property. And Scarlet just says that I'll show you who the owner of Tara is and throws some crap on the face of this land shark. Now, the father of Scarlet rides himself to death, is trying to show who the actual owner is and how things are going to be taken care of here, and then tries to jump with the horse over the fence and falls and dies. Scarlet orders Mammy to prepare a new dress out of a curtain for meeting Butler who will get a visitor in this horse jail. So they have a charge against him, but they'd rather prefer Butler's big pockets than hanging him. So Scarlet is there. But uh, Butler is not too interested about this deal and says that Scarlet is, you are not worth $300. And besides, his funds are in Liverpool. And Mrs. Miss or Mrs. Watling, the friend of Butler, now visits Butler too, which Scarlet is not really into. And here's a little moment where we see how one of the northerners is trying to convince uh, the black people to get their own mule if you come to work for us and you're gonna become voters as well. So also kind of feels like a obvious chap at northerners. Because it took some time. Uh, Scarlet visits the lumber factory owned by Frank Kennedy who is into the Scarlet sister Swellen and here happens the aforementioned argument or the lie from Scarlet. So... Move on to Swellen, the sister of Scarlet, getting the news about this, and Swellen is is furious. Ashley doesn't want to start a lumber business with Scarlet. Scarlet fakes her crying, though, and Melanie encourages Ashley to go to Atlanta to help her with the lumber business, and so it goes. Atlanta Lumber Factory, where they are using convicts who are cheaper now than the darkies, which Ashley would prefer. Interestingly, they are referred to as Darkies, uh, probably a word which was not used at the time, but uh, I am not aware how it w- might have went. Now Butler is once again drooling over Scarlet for some reason, appears out of nowhere, and there's this discussion and drooling at the horse carriage outside during daylight, and now Scarlet is being attacked on the horse carriage. Frank says basically to hell with this, and I need to go to a political meeting, which as discussed in the book was KKK meeting. At this point, Melanie tells the butler where Ashley is hiding, 
Now Butler and Ashley appear drunk back at the property and, and Butler gives the fake story that they were spending some time at Mrs. Watling's place. Of course later we are shown that Watling in the next scene is giving getting some thanks from Mally for this this gracious cooperation. The, so the police kind of are convinced by the explanation and they leave the scene. Frank was shot through the head so the marriage is kind of over right there for Scarlett. And Melanie thanks Watling for the support in the previous scene. Somehow Melanie still remains ignorant about everything that is going on between Scarlett uh, or Ashley or how Scarlett feels about Ashley at the very least and says that she thinks Scarlett is really in mourning at this moment for Kennedy. Butler arrives. Good quote from Mammy. I don't know why she's coming, but she's coming downstairs to meet Butler. So Mary's Butler for the money. There is scenes of honeymoon and showing the new riches that she is able to get her hands on via this marriage. This honeymoon and this this showing the riches, basically. These are the kind of scenes that I could see easily being removed from the film. But uh, it's there. We see this one boat scene. We see a scene at the restaurant. But good scenes, no doubt. And Well, they... they do work as, once again, to paint you an image of Scarlet as a character and Scarlet's personality. And the whole chemistry between her and Red, because Red Butler still in, in this relationship is someone who hopes that one day Scarlet would actually let go of Ashley, uh, let go of her feelings towards Ashley Wilkes and would actually start start to love him instead and kind of also at the same time he is smitten by by Scarlett's strong-willed nature and kind of the result that Scarlett shows those being the characteristics in Scarlett that speaks to Red and that for the audience the way how that's mostly shown is is precisely here when when it's shown that that even in marriage with Red, what Scarlett is most concerned about is is her financial security. What are you t- thinking about how rich we are? Yeah, uh, but mainly preserving Tara. Yeah, preserving Tara. But uh, once again, preserving Tara is tied to being financially secure. Sure, sure. And 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 it it it's also it's it's hard to in the end say how much it's or how much in uh, how much of Scarlet as as a character as a as a character motivation how much of it is preserving Tara and how much it's simply about being rich about being financially secure like if if she would have the choice between the two losing Tara or losing basically any chance ever again to be financially secure. As she say, says it, be certain to starve again. Which one would yeah. she pick? Well, hard to say, because the whole film is riding on the fact that what matters in the end most to her is just the Tara. That's what it's all about in the end. Yeah, that, that's that's what the film says. And and it, the film does make make it perfectly clear that Tara means a great deal to Scarlett. Tara basically being 
being Scarlet's ties to to her previous life and also to her lost now lost parents mm. because it's basically the only thing that she still has that that resembles him uh, res- that re- reminds her of of her family but at, at the same time it it bursts to remember that on the, on the second half of the film Scarlet is being financially secure and she is being rich which kind of makes it easy for her to be concerned about Tara and being all about Tara because she no longer has to make that that choice be- between land and between wealth yep <clears throat> we get more misery of Swellen who states out that while her sister has had three husbands she will be an old maid followed by an interesting bonding scene between Butler and Mammy, where Butler insists that uh, he wants to look under the hood of Mammy, which I first interpreted as Butler just checking out that, oh, let's see that Mammy is not carrying any stolen property under that dress. Well, she goes to state out that, oh, Butler, you are so bad. But in the end, it seems that it's only about uh, what is under there, which is this new dress. So the baby now gets its kind of a release date. Baby has been pushed out to the world and is named Bonnie Blue Butler. Mammy is again dressing Scarlet, and Scarlet can no longer be 18 and a half inches again because of giving birth, in the opinion of Mammy. So Scarlet decides to not have more babies, but Mammy knows Butler that that Butler wants to have a baby boy next lined up, and Butler steps. On the picture of Ashley, while Scarlett is explaining that she doesn't want to have any more babies, and asks if she would be happy if Melly died out of the way, so she could be happy with Ashley. But she insists, well, she doesn't very strongly insist that that's not the case. And then there is a Watling visiting one of the best pals of hers, Butler. So they discuss Scarlett's situation. Watling and Butler clearly like each other by Watling, giving a little bit of a tear at the end of this scene where Butler clearly shows that she cares a great deal, maybe a little bit more than he tells outright about Watling. So if it's not clear by now for the listener, this film is all about really a tragedy from beginning to end. Everybody involved with the wrong people, everything going against everybody's will. Mm, Yeah, pretty much. Mrs. Merriweather now gives advices on how to not suck a thumb if you're a baby. And uh, Mrs. Mead joins the scene. This is kind of a random scene which I didn't think was doing anything else than just uh, introducing us at this point for some reason with Mrs. Merriweather and Mrs. Mead. Well, it, it does show Red's attempts to kind of a shoot and, uh, soothe over his image in the community. Because in the beginning of the film... The point is being made how how the the people around like like Scarlett's family and her close, close relatives how 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 the people in Atlanta doesn't like Red or how how they see Red as an unsavory character because because of his past which is mentioned briefly and at at this point of story Red is using his money. But also kind of using his kid by repeatedly 
showing out, out outside with 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 the with the child and also you using his kind of a charm by being polite to everyone, no matter what they have said about Red behind behind his back previously, to kind of not now to to win their favor and to win their acceptance and ba- basically the the whole I I'm asking you a help a tip on how to make my child stop sucking her thumb remark is is it's it's basically it's nothing more than once again red tr- trying to win the people of Atlanta over to his side okay because the way i saw this scene was just yet another attempt by the film to show the butler in a good light that she that he really cares about the baby and is willing to care for it no matter what which we already kind of understand without this scene as well yeah to to me it's it's mostly to showcase the the process that red wants to be accepted in atlanta could very well be because originally the red character has been of such nature and and of such reputation that even even Red's own parents won't allow him to come home. As the, as they make the remark at the beginning of the film when Red is is at first introduced. Uh, Scarlett and Ashley are now reflecting about their past. Nothing has gone according to the plan and the good old times of the soft Negro laugh and all that jazz that they keep talking about. But. Uh, uh, Melly surprises them and uh, notices that they are hugging and uh, Melly reads this in the sense that you should be reading it and uh, then Butler however convinces forces Scarlett to go join the party of Ashley was it like a, a birthday celebration or it, it was about? birthday celebration if I remember correctly yeah so so in Butler's view she has to go there to to keep up the facades and to Show that she is not scared, and to kind of t- try to try to nullify her assumptions. Yeah, uh, also to actually face the music because everybody knows that Scarlet, what Scarlet has done, is wrong, and there should be some repercussions because of that. And Butler is now drunk and blames that uh, Ashley and Scarlet should should just do what they want to do and. Uh, this is really not my place anymore, I can't take it anymore, and so on and so forth. And uh, here is the famous moment for the marital rape, which is followed with the very problematic follow-up morning as well. Yeah, it is. Then again, then again, the follow-up scene is kind of the more progressive scenes in the film, and in in Hollywood cinema altogether. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the film actually, like, the the the, the first first to, to walk the 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 audiences through this. What what happens first is marital rape. You are not being shown the rape, but you are shown heavily suggested rape. Yeah, very su- suggested rape. You are sh- being shown drunk and red. Lifting unwilling Scarlet on his arms and walking up the stairs that lead in the bedroom. So, yeah, yeah, rape is very obvious here. 
And the next morning you are being shown very happy Scarlet, who apparently still enjoyed the experience in the end, and who now is really okay with what happened last night. And this is something that, that Hollywood cinema kind of loves to do, where they, they, they show you a rapist scenario and then they absolve the rapist by showing you that in the end the lady liked it. Like this, this is done in comedies where, where a man forces himself on, onto a woman. And then it's followed by a line, I di- something like, I didn't know that all nerds were so good, or, or yeah, that, that was wonderful, or, or simply showing you that the lady is smiling. This is like, like fucking constant Hollywood imagery when it comes to Ray. Where is the progressive part still waiting? It comes in the act that Red actually acknowledges that what he does, or what he did, <laughs> was wrong and offers Scarlett a divorce. Seeing that that the rape is a moment where he kind of can't come back to, that he has actually crossed the line, because that's something that Hollywood movies don't often tend to do in the end. Interesting, I didn't see that, that like that at all. I just saw that this has now gone so bad when you look at all the drunkenness previous night and all the words that were said, so it's better to end it here. And never mind, we had sex, but or I actually raped you. Uh, that that's not part of the equation. He 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 does outright apologize for what happened well, last night. He apologizes. Granted, yeah. granted, granted, it's not a good apology, and he doesn't really make any amends for his actions there. No. But at least he does acknowledge that what he did was wrong. And when when Scarlet opposes against this and and kind of makes the remark that that what it it was okay, Red still maintains his his position that what he did was not right. And then then for from there he comes into the point that that I I'm offering you a divorce. Yeah, this is interesting because there was a director of production code administration who sent a lengthy letter urging the film crew to remove any references of rape whatsoever. Uh, this was during the early stages in the writing phases of the script, but however, as we see here, it's quite clear what is going on. It's, it's surprisingly clear seeing how strict the Hayes Code was during the time. Mm, yeah. But also Butler then kind of ends this uh, moment by threatening with the whip, which he has always thought would benefit Scarlet immensely. It goes from one end to the other, so it's kind of like, oh, well, I'm sorry, that was this was horrible, but I would like to whip you now. Then picks up Bonnie, goes with Bonnie to London. There Bonnie has nightmares, interesting nightmares actually, quote, a dreadful big bear was standing on my stomach, which sounds very much like a sleep paralysis to me. And now Nanny shut down all the lights to the dismay of Butler and this is the possible reason for the dreadful big bear dream. And they go back home, Scarlet tells she is pregnant. As stated before in the book, she had three children, so the, the miscarriage there didn't have as much emphasis perhaps than it has here, because it's the only the second child. And the scene in which Gable didn't want to cry follows this, 
they did two takes, one where he cried and one where he, uh, it was filmed back to camera. And Clark finally said after seeing two of these shots and uh, he was able to decide which version will be chosen and he decided that definitely the crying scene looks the best here. So that's what they went with. Quote, if you only knew who she really loved. This is what Rhett says to Melly, and apparently Melly is still completely clueless. Melly tells that she, that Scarlet really loves Rhett and will forgive everything given time. Rhett is doubtful about this. Bonnie's ride to death follows this as she now does some kind of a horse trickery and there is the fence and she breaks her neck. There was a young boy who doubled for the fall. <laughs> it doesn't make it any easier to watch. It actually looks pretty terrible. Butler doesn't want to bury Bonnie. So now he's going completely crazy after Gerald O'Hara. Melly convinces, however, the burial next morning and Melly falls on her knees because she is sick, followed by Melanie at her deathbed. So, quote, look after him for me, just as you have looked after me, meaning taking care of Ashley. Well, Ashley and Scarlett, well, actually, it's just Scarlett talking to herself now. After seeing Melly, she just uh, makes the statement that, okay, I've been just wasting time throughout these three hours and 43 minutes, roughly, with you. Yeah, that that mostly being, or, or that being the direct result of her finally see, she seeing that, that despite all what Ashley had led her to believe, Ashley still very much loved Melanie and was never actually going to do, to trade Melanie to Scarlet or have or let Scarlet to have a place in his life. That and um, I just get the idea that at this particular moment, for sure, Ashley is very disinterested in listening to Scarlet. Scarlet really is not <laughs> really the, choosing the perfect moment here talking about these issues be- between Ashley and Scarlett. I felt that, that this was uh, like the shittiest timing that you could possibly ever have. Yeah, yeah, but, but that it most definitely was. But at, at the same time, that was basically the o- only moment in the film when Scarlett gets an honest reaction from Ashley. Yeah, which is because the negative. Because the, the, the way how, how basically the whole Ashley-Scarlett situation has played out throughout the movies is that Scarlett has real feelings towards, towards Ashley. Ashley being the only man that Scarlett truly is interested about. And Ashley on, on his end has been kind of a misleading Scarlett through and throughout the movie, uh, constantly being kind of a stopping Scarlett's advances, but never actually taking taking the real step and to say, say to Scarlett that he's not interested on her. In, instead, well, what Ashley makes is, is make excuses mm. as why they can't be together now. It's, it's because I'm already mar- married to Melanie. It's because... What you care about is Tara. It's, be- it's because of of pride and honor. It's very much like like Red remarks yep. in the film of the comic figure. In this is the long long suffering Mister Wilkes, who can't be mentally wait- faithful to his wife and can't be unfaithful to her technically. 
And that pretty much is Ashley in in the in a nutshell. And one of the main reasons why Ashley also in the story is not really a hero. And like like Scarlet, Scarlet and like the other characters also, it's, it's kind of a sleazy pack of dicks. Yeah, all this talk about uh, Ashley's honor, which she which he basically breaks in the very early moments of the film, having some romantic uh, touches and even kisses with Scarlet, so it flies out of the window pretty fast. Yeah, and that is interesting no uh, or important notion to be made of the character of Ashley, because that is kind of a that is what comes into the into play when in in that one scene where Scarlett and Ashley are talking about the plantation owners using slavery, where as uh, Ashley is condemning Scarlett for using prison labor. And he's like, I, I don't want to make money out of people's backs. Scarlet counter-argues that that didn't stop you from using slaves. And Ashley makes the remarks that it was different. We didn't treat them that way. And gosh darn it, I was going to free them the, the very next Sunday. But unfortunately, the Northerners freed them first. And that, that, that whole argument kind of... It has to be contrasted against the character of Ashley because that 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 also paints the argument into the light that it's it's not a morally sound character now making the argument that we no we didn't treat slaves badly but what it is it is morally compromised shitbag Ashley making those statements and making those arguments this way kind of a painting the whole argument into it into a dishonest light and making it more of an excuse and once again in my opinion lending credit to the argument that what Zelznik was trying to do with the film was condemn slavery condemn south and kind of show you show you show the audiences the hypocrisy or in in the southern mentality and kind of show you why you should should move past the southern ideas and why you should let that let that image of the south kind of die with the history and that that one once again once again being the message that you have to ha- have to retrieve from the subtext and the cinematic language of the film because the surface level of text doesn't give this to you outright Instead, the surface level of text unfortunately ends up misleading the audiences, giving you the completely opposite view of overly patriotic, slavery apologizing, southern apologizing film. But to, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong here, it has never been publicly stated that this is what, uh, what the producer was after in the subtext. Well, the producer did ma- make the notion. In, in the memos. For example, towards the importance of validating the black experience and not trying to rob the black populace from, from the right and from the opportunity to have the history contrasted on, on screen. But in, instead, what Celsius was 
aiming to do was put a great emphasis on kind of a validating and supporting the the black memory of those days. Like the how how Selznick says in in one studio memo, and I quote. I for one have no desire to produce any anti-Negro film. In our picture I think we have to be awfully careful that the Negroes come out decidedly on the right side of the ledger, which I do not think should be difficult. And basically the the whole Negroes coming on the right side side of, of of history and right side of the ledger, it holds within also the point that that what what black populace has been saying about the slave days and the way how they were treated and all that and basically the black experience of slavery has to be validated and and has to be shown and said that that is the truth and that that is the real history behind it and that basically is the whole stance that Ashley goes against of when when he makes the remark that we didn't treat the black slaves like that, and in fact, I was just about to let uh, about to set them free. Yeah, that, I think this just kind of corroborates my theory that this film is melting blood all over the place. And considering how much time has been used making this product, it's surprising how all over the place the messaging appears to be. Yeah, that that is is my. My kind of a biggest problem with the film, precisely that, mm. because the way how I see the film is is that what Selznick was trying to do was to make a film that that criticizes and in a way dismantles the idea of South and and the and the kind of a the Southern legacy. So, so to say, our, this was this was supposed to be a film that is extremely discriminating toward, towards the romanticized and glorified image of the South and the South of those days and the slavery apologizing arguments. Like, for example, Ashley's argument that the slaves were not treated that badly. Gone with the Wind was supposed to show you that that argument does not hold hold up to water and that argument is 40. So in, in that sense, I would say that Zeltnik's heart was in the right place and the film was doing exactly the right things. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I don't share your argument that this is necessarily an important film in the way that it, it kind of showcases the, the difficulties that America as a nation would would had at the time to deal with its slave-owning past. But then again, it shows you that perfectly, as we can see, that it, this is, or if it is, in fact, in the way that you also said it, that Selznick would have been giving this uh, certain subtext that suggests something kind of otherwise, or, you know, just giving the blacks a good light in the in the sense that it's making these southern, some southern arguments or the glorification of the southern life at a joke. But yeah, and at the same time, the film is supposed to be as faithful as possible to the original source material. That's that's what the Selznick's approach was also supposed to be. So you have kind of a three ways, and none of it really makes sense if you put it together. 
Mm, yeah, in, in a way, yeah. Uh, but basically, I, I I see your point that that the film is kind kind of a time capsule into the time when the nation could not actually deal with its past and and the complicated feelings that 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 history kind of a hold in in America. And granted, I I actually do do agree with you that you you are right on on that remark what what i i'm not entirely sure of is 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 gone with the wind the movie about that difficulty when it comes to the depicting the south when it comes to the southern apologetic cinema when it comes to the films that apologize that time period and tries to kind of a that that show you that how difficult the, may, maybe the topic is to approach even today and and the disconnect between what people feel or want to feel about the south versus the history i i could say that there there would be better modern cinema that basically showcases this disconnect like for example the cards and generals mm-hmm. which was was it 2004 <laughs> Okay, a different kind of time capsule, sure. Well, yes and no. I mean, Garson Generals in its core is basically it's precisely it's it's the anti Gone with the Wind. It's the film that shows you the Southern militia as as heroes. It's it's just the, it's the film that that credits completely fictional situations to characters like Stonewall Jackson to paint them in in very romanticized light. Like Gods and Generals has scenes where for example Stonewall Jackson who himself owned slaves back at the day makes the remark that well I'm I really hope that I can free you all guys tomorrow and it's it's Basically, when it comes to the end of slavery, it's just a question. It's it's going to happen no matter of what. I'm simply in my deepest depths of my heart. I'm simply hoping that that us us Southerners will do that before the no- North has the chance. This was a facepalming moment for me when now Scarlet seems to realize everything that the audience has realized ages ago, which is that Red is. Not that bad, or is like the worst marriage that she has had so far. Well, anyway, I think she's once again kind of fooling herself, thinking that there would be some kind of a future with Red that she really hasn't cared that much about, even though their relationship probably has grown a lot during the times that they have been together. But still, I, I really don't see any future for these guys. Uh, but anyway, Scarlet runs to Red. Red is not convinced that. She is now head over heels with Red. She is now head over heels with Red. So Red leaves. There were two versions shot of this famous moment when when uh, Red says, "I just don't give a damn." There was another version that that where Red said, "Quote, I just don't care." Kind of a safe shot, a safe version in the case that the authorities would make it so that they could not use the damn, which was a problematic word word to use at the time, although. Then the association changed the rules, I believe, just for this picture to to make it possible to use the dam in certain situation, whether it's 
to you know uh, give a accurate representation of historical or literary works in some situations. And Selznick dreamed up ending for the film that remains here is where Scarlet goes on the steps and hears voices, kind of a ghost-like voices of Ashley and others, culminating in the high-volume speaking about Tara, 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 Tara. And Scarlet realizes that Tara is the most important thing and to her, and at least that it has been the only location or thing in this movie that has been constant and has stayed with her. And, you know, anyway, after all, tomorrow is another day, so she can try to convince Red to come back, which I don't think will happen. And I don't think the writer does either, because she was not interested in writing a follow-up book so they could make more money and make a sequel film out of it, where Red would be back in, or Scarlet would be back in the arms of Red which I don't think many people care to see. But nevertheless, there is some adaptations out of an unofficial sequel book called Scarlet, uh, which is also made into a one six-hour TV miniseries starring Timothy Dalton as Red. So go look that up if you're interested. There was also a happy ending written for the film where Red comes into carriage goes to the railway station, settles in the train, and train starts to go on. And then Scarlet is sitting beside Red now, and Red is being very unsurprised about the fact. And then they kiss after a little bit of a touching discussion, and uh, then the film would have faded out, and Selznick thought that this would be a terrible idea. But this was one of the ideas that they had in the playbooks in early moments. Yeah, it's... Once again, I haven't read the book, because... Like with Gone with the Wind, goddamn, I can't master of enough interest to read all those, all over the hundred thousand pages that the books are long. Yeah. Like Gone with the Wind alone, it's what, 1034 pages. It's almost as long as Stephen King's It. And Stephen King's It actually has serial killing clown in it. But. Yeah, most definitely. I haven't touched the books, because I have too much room on my hands already. But what I've understood from the reputation of the book and reputation of the TV series, the follow-up story really is not that good, and it's kind of a tacked-on happy ending to the story of, of Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I don't think I need it either. But... Yeah, there's so many things to say about this film. There's so much history and so many problems and interesting things, but it's just the fact that we're now gonna go to the quickies and favorite performance. That would be, in my end, Vivian Lee for playing Scarlet. It's basically, it's, it's, it's a close call. Like, the film is filled with great performances. There's, there is no bad actor on this. And the real... Fight is between Lee and and Gable, but I, I I would say Scarlet still gets maybe a bit more expression okay. throughout the film. Because for me it was quite clear which uh, actor I'm going to choose from the pack. And although Vivian Lee and Clark Gable give, I believe, great performances for the time, uh, I would still go with uh, the mammy actor Hattie McDaniel who did win the Oscar for the Best Supporting Actress, and I think she has a really great range, is able to 
act in long long shots and deliver a lot of dialogue and be convincing whether she's crying or angry or whatever she's doing. So anyway, Hattie McDaniel. Yeah, uh, with with Hattie McDaniel's Oscar, once again, because I, I've said so much bad stuff, uh, bad stuff about Selznick execution of his ideas. It bears to remind that, that Selznick actually did help McDeal to to get the Oscar. Selznick pushed heavily for for the committee to her her prize. Okay. Yeah. Nevertheless, a favorite scene. Uh that would be the moment when Atlanta is burning. For me that would be the death of Bonnie scene, because I am a horrible human being. You most definitely are. Favorite shot. Would be the I never go hungry again shot. Mm. It's against the background. Yeah, that is great. I really like the silhouette shots. The silhouette shot of the bird giving Melly. That's some of the artistic stuff here, you know. Nothing that special, but I like the shot anyway. So, favorite quote? Uh, goes to red here. Maybe it's because I've always had a weakness for lost causes once they are truly lost. Or maybe I'm ashamed of myself. Who knows? Showcasing that in 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 his heart, Red Butler was a film podcaster. <laughs> oh, good one. For me, it would be quote once again from Clark: "Heaven help the man who ever really loves you." End quote. Because that's really moment of truth right there. Favorite kill? Mm, that would be Bonnie doing somersaults. Same here, Bonnie. I seem to gravitate a lot towards this Bonnie stuff. There's there's always always something special in child death that just tucks your heart. Oh, I was ready to hear that there's always some special place in hell for you. <laughs> well, well, I, I I can't make an argument now that we both are, are, agree that Bonnie's <laughs> death is the best death of the goddamn film. But random confusing question, my darling. How was your holiday? Did you get some time off from this podcast? And Mo- ha- more, most definitely. Actually, I, I did... <laughs> Do absolutely fucking nothing con- concerning this podcast. I I knew that going going with the wind was coming, and I I, I had like four weeks time to prepare. I did not watch the film for the first three weeks. I did not read the book, and when it came to backgrounds and all that, I basically did it once again, like it normally goes. I did it in a week. Very good, very good. Because I had nothing better to do. Of course, I had to fill my schedule with even more hobbies outside of this podcast, so I started swimming, I managed to read a little bit of books and uh, watched a lot of films, so that didn't go out of the out of the way even during the holidays. Because, well, as we have noted before, this podcast most definitely is poison for anyone who wants to watch movies or filmaholics, because you don't have time. First shot that comes to mind. Would be, I never go hungry again, shot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for me, it's the finishing ranch ball with the the end titles. Kind of a similar one. Kind of, yeah. There are three, three composite short, uh, shorts against the background of Tara, which kind of work as a book ends to the film. Yeah. The, the f- first one is when when Scarlet's father shows, the ta- uh, shows Tara to her and makes the notion that the land is... Basically, the uh, the most important thing in the world. Then there is the I'll never go hung- hungry again, and then there is the closing shot of 
Scarlet looking over over Tara. But what took you out of Gone with the Wind? Um, I don't know. The the length maybe. I uh, and like like it's been absolutely painfully clear throughout this episode that there was a lot to kind of, kind of digest and, and a lot of kind of kind of themes that you had to go over in your head as you were watching this film because. <clears throat> the film is a tad bit problematic at times, <laughs> but but still, I I kind of didn't drop out of the movie at, at any point. I I was with the movie throughout throughout the over three hours running time, which is the reason why I didn't feel that this was kind of a, any kind of a torture or a torturous experience to watch the film. And that is a great achievement of the film, nevertheless. Like. I don't think it has the most exciting uh, plot or, or overall... Yeah, overall plot, I don't think is the most interesting in the world. I mean, I don't have anything about uh, anything against about romantic films, per se, but I have just... I just found that maybe I'm not too intrigued about the plot that much in Gone with the Wind, but it's executed with uh, such craze technically and... A great care has been paid in many, many scenes. So, and of course, it's the kind of a time capsule that it is. So, I enjoyed almost every moment. But I still maintain that there's a lot of material that could be considered filler. There is stuff that you can cut, and it wouldn't make really any difference. But sure, uh, I, it carries on with me. I, I, I didn't lose my concentration really. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree with you on on the filler. And also with the not captivating plot. Yeah, for for me that's the that speaks greatly about the film in the sense that it's able to keep me interested for such of a long time, considering that the, the, it's such of a kind of a definitely. Uh, I think the whole Gone with the Wind phenomena is overhyped to the moon, really, despite the fact that it's uh, technically an interesting watch, performance-wise as well. What took you in? Uh, to me, it's it's basically basically it, it was the cinematography yeah. throughout the film Be, because the film is really gosh darn beautiful to look at. Yeah, and 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 the second was well well to me it was the plot actually because I I did enjoy a great deal not about the love story itself like. Scarlet crying over Ashley is is kind of like meh, but but all, all, all the stuff with with Red Butler and Red's character and Scarlet's character and well, basically Scarlet being a, horri- a hor- horrifying and conniving bitch that she is throughout the film and Red being somewhat roguish at times one and at times raping shitheel who still is m- most comprehensive on on his moral standing was uh, that that's something that i really did enjoy yeah it's beautifully done it's uh, pretty to look at nice quality cinematography cinematography from an experienced cinematographer who had actually been working on his first color film right here at the times when creating technicolor films was well, creating color films was quite difficult, considering how it was done with uh, separate reels for e- every 
black and white uh, that you need to develop the color yeah i mean yeah that uh, is something that that today maybe is not completely understood how hard making the goddamn technical films actually was yeah L- like you mentioned it it was a special camera that that actually had three different reels of film going at the same time, and then that ha- the, the, that material kind of had to be put through its its own mm-hmm. own projector that was I actually able to to combine the three reels and make one picture out of it, which was apparently and- extremely hard. Which, which was apparently extremely hard, also kind of extremely expensive, mm. because there wasn't that many, even that many technical cameras going around in in uh, in US at the time. Like, what, what was there like six or ten technical cameras, all all of which actually in the end ended up being used in the <laughs> film. So yeah, <laughs> for example, the multi-camera fiery shots in the middle parts of the film. So that's a lot of technical cameras running there. That that is, that is. But as a result of technical technology, we we still have films like Gone with the Wind and other technical classics in which the coloring of of the image actually still holds true even today. And like with old film classics, the, the case usually is that that when watch uh, watch today with high definition and modern TVs and and the maybe the original film reel receiving some some abuse throughout the times the colors kind of fade and they don't look that good today but but these old technical classics the colors still are rich incredibly rich even today and they 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 kind of there is a there is a kind of a their own element in the old technical classics, which makes them a joy to look at. Yeah, the first feature-length picture to be made in three-color technical was Becky Sharp back in 1935, so this is about four years before Gone with the Wind came out. As a source of sacrilege, what would you change in the film, Henrik? I would actually make it more clear on the political standing that the film has. Uh, True. To be completely honest. Uh, That is true. Of course, there's some sentiments of those times that uh, might be a little bit... doesn't really make sense to make the argument that, oh, this should have been cut at the time. But definitely to make the message a little bit clearer. What, what is the intention here? Yeah. That, that's basically it. I mean, the film is so long that, well, we have mentioned it so many times. There is some material that you could cut and you could still make the film work, no doubt. But I still would hesitate to fix this film in that way because it's part of kind of the identity and the experience of the whole film so that's all for me and you really know you're watching the uh, gone with the wind when frankly my darling you don't give a damn <laughs> uh, you really know you're watching gone with the wind when it lasts three hours 43 minutes or when even the biggest cinephile has to pay a visit to the loo during the film because it's so long three adjectives to describe the film uh, mine would be long, captivating, and operatic. Long, pleasant, overhyped, I would say. I, I, don't, I don't completely agree with you on overhyped. It's, it's partly, it's, it's partly, it's, it's 
it, it, it's a legacy is is overhyped. I I do admit it. Yeah, that. I I'm 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 kind of giving you half of an overhype. I mean, not not full overhype, but half. I mean, there's so many romantic films. I don't know why you would specifically need to pay attention to this film. There's many critics. because this has one of the best characters mm. of all romantic films because the characters are shit here. <laughs> I give it that much. It's 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 one one of the saving graces of of the romanticism of of the going with the wind. That the fact that the characters are not heroes and they are not really the good guys. I admit that, yeah, yeah, that I like the ending as it is. Uh, there is no really happy ending in any way. It's kind of a different love story still. I watched this. Did you look at your watch during the film? Uh, of course I did. It's goddamn hours. <laughs> But not out of boredom, I guess. No, not out of boredom. Yeah, something similar in my direction. And Henrik, would you recommend Gone with the Wind? And that is a tricky question, God damn it! <laughs> because, as as I mentioned in the uh, in the beginning of the episode, tonight's question is that if you take Sosnik's words for granted, if if you take that Sosnik's authorial intent was in the right pa- place. How on earth did you end up with a film that today is being called to be banned? And the argument or the answer where where I'm come to is that that is because basically in during the film and outside also outside of the film, while Selznick takes one one step step forwards, he also takes one step sideways and one step backwards, meaning that the film is. Kind of a thematically, the film is kind of all over the goddamn place. It condemns the South. It glorifies the South. It co- condemns the time period. It doesn't show you the horrific event, events of, of slavery. It it tries to be pro- progressive and tries to argue that you should actually leave the South alone. You should move past the, the Southern ideals. And at the same time, the film in real life opened in Lowe's Grand Theatre, which is a southern film theatre which did not cater to black audiences. So basically Selznick was all over the place when it came to uh, actually, well, 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 to say anything about anything. And that kind of ties into the whole recommendation question, because this is once again, this is, this is a pl- point where our rating scale on this podcast becomes a tipping point. Because if, once again, if we would use a score system like like zero to five stars, this would be a... We would have an easy way out of the situation. We would kind of... We would, we would celebrate the technical aspects of the film and then we would kind of quickly mention that, yeah, yeah, there's some problematic elements and then we would give it a neutral... 3 out of 5 score or something like that. But since since the closing question is would we recommend the movie that also means that we are kind of a we are we are giving an an endorsement to a movie that we end up recommending. We are actually saying that you should go and see this film. That that's what we, we say in the closing arguments, and with Gone with the Wind, it actually begs the question, does the film actually manage to pull off what it, what it sets out to pull off? 
well enough that you should really see the film and can the film be insensitive enough that it accidentally ends up endorsing ideas that are harmful and painful like even even if it's not the film in film's intention does it accidentally say that slavery was okay and the black people should just shut the fuck up about the whole slavery thing because it wasn't that bad and you were treated good and you are just whiny bitches today and we're back at the day and we were supposed to we were just about to set you free except that goddamn ass at Lincoln just had to get ahead of us and do it before we had a fair chance. Yeah, just to add something into the melting pot. Uh, Clark Cable was in the premiere of the film and uh, he said that he would be absolutely furious and would not accept and would not join would not join the premiere if uh, his co-star actress Hattie McDaniel would be segregated into a corner uh, while dining in this event. But so she was, and Hattie McDaniel actually said to Clark Cable that uh, she would like her to join the event nevertheless. Yes. Yeah, but with that out of the way, in the end of the day, yeah... I would recommend Gone with the Wind. It's, like, like I mentioned, technically it's it's still a marvel to look at. Look at. And story-wise, the characters I really do enjoy, and I really do enjoy the story. I, I like, like the fact that in this film you spend your time with basically horrible asshats. And Red Butler's character, I, I do think, is one of the best male characters in in romantic films for quite some time, if not for all time. And I do believe that the film's heart, in the end, is in the right place. Like, I I don't believe that Gone with the Wind is trying to glorify the South, is trying to apologize, is is trying to explain away the slavery and is... I, I don't feel that the film is trying to say that that slavery wasn't that bad, you guys. But that being said, I, I do think that maybe American audiences su- should take the film with a grain of salt. Because, once again, American Civil War and American slavery is... Basically, it's not that personal question to a two Finnish film podcast host, but it's extremely personal and touchy subject to American film-going audiences. And for those audiences, there I can see that there is a possibility that you may find the film to be hurtful if, if you see that the film is glorifying the South. I can see how that could be your reading, and it's the way how the film is, because the film is such of a goddamn clusterfuck in its thematic messaging, it's kind of even hard to validate, it's it's hard to unvalidate that, that take or that reading of the film. If you feel that the film hurts you, I really can't go and say that it doesn't. Because the film, like mentioned, it's kind of a it, it, it it's the take one step back forward, take one one sideway, and take one step backwards type of situation. 
Yeah, easily to see from this post right now in 2020 that this is a missed opportunity in the representation of African Americans during the American Civil War for white audiences and uh, changing the possibly the 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 uh, idea of African Americans considerably for the better via art during this time period but uh, considering all the technical achievements and how it's a pleasure to look at as you have said as we have pointed out many times and it being a very important part of the legacy the history of Hollywood yeah most definitely this is something to recommend tonight but Henrik did you like the film I I did like the film tremendously. I liked the film more than I actually like dissecting the film and coming to this podcast talking about about the many failings of the film. So we have both given a recommendation and also we both like the film regardless of its shortcomings and mess that it provides for us tonight. Yeah, that that was gone with the wind. Yeah. Boy, was that a bumpy ride. Like, can you just imagine what it would have been like if we would have watched even more problematic film like, I don't know, The Bird of the Nation. Like, oh boy. Oh shit. I'm glad. I'm glad that we didn't and will not do that. <laughs> oh, what have you done, Henrik? No, I'm not complaining. Well, well, once again, once again, who was the goddamn idiot who actually decided <laughs> to go and pick my list? This is on you, man. I, I merely put some names of the films on the paper. You are the one who actually decided to put them all in the calendar. Well, when I received these uh, movies by mail and I started to re- read the back covers, like, uh, okay, I see some kind of a Henrikian patterns going on here, like, I can see where this is going, running time 191 minutes and uh, <laughs> 300 minutes and what are we doing here? And Racial thematics and Ku Klux Klan. Oh yeah, this is the flick-like <laughs> yeah. experience. But, 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 you know, uh, uh, after this one, uh, after Going with the Wind and uh, uh, after after Nation, you, you will love me and be willing to suck my dick when we finally touch upon Ooh. something much more easier, like William Shakespeare with Coriolanus. Oh. It, 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 it's, it's going to feel like grace at that point, man. I think this was your secret plot just to fuck with me for the start of the year here. <laughs> After all. Yeah, well, well, welcome back to the, from the holidays, man. <laughs> I, I hope you enjoyed your time off. <laughs> business as usual but i will bounce back and bring us the nightmare on elm street 3 at some point <laughs> okay well as usual you can find us on our youtube channel as well if you are not using podcast applications that much then you're probably already listening to this from youtube so you can subscribe there for whatever needs you might have you can also follow us on instagram facebook and twitter i'm way too tired to make any follow-ups after this one but hey thanks for joining us once again and keep on flicking until next week once again Clark Kaapeli Clark Kaapeli Skaalet jää pihaan katsomaan. Eikä edes itse asiassa leffassa kulje pois valmiissa.
Se on Silloin, totta. Ihan, ihan paska bändi ja ihan paska biisi. 